0: I'm very well Salvatore, thanks for having me on. Well, um, we're actually in a period
1: of time, or an era if you like, where we are much less secure than we have been uh, for decades, uh, unfortunately. Um, Australia is smack bang in the middle of the Indo-Pacific, which is a a region that is of critical importance, obviously, for the global economy in the 21st century. But it's also a region which, frankly, uh, has much more volatility geostrategically, particularly in the past decade. And, and of course, we're seeing um, the rise of China uh, is a big part of that and the tension between China and the US uh, and other powers in the region with respect to uh, the primacy of, of or the hegemony, if you like, of uh, superpowers in the region and the tension with, between China and the US. That leads to um, obviously some volatility uh, and some tension um, and it it, it it poses significant challenges for Australia because as we all know, uh, China is our major trading partner and the US is our major strategic and security ally. Uh, and so our uh, challenge, I guess, is to be able to, well, to put it simply, walk and chew gum at the same time, be able to enhance the relationships uh, simultaneously. So to our maximum national interest um, and, and try and, and, and uh, avoid as much as possible rising tension or conflict in the region. Australia can do that. I think we're, we're clever enough uh, to, to be able to uh, make that pathway through, navigate that minefield, if you like, um, to our own benefit. But it's not gonna be easy, Salvatore. It is a difficult period. One last thing I'll say about that is that, you know, in the past, uh, we were suffering from the tyranny of distance. You know, Australia was sort of, uh, Paul Keating once put it uh, rather vulgarly by saying we were at the arse end of the, of the world. That's no longer the case. We're like smack bang in the middle of the most important region globally uh, in decades. And we have a, actually a unique challenge and a unique opportunity um, uh, in this period of time to ensure our prosperity, our stability. Our
0: security um, with respect to our major partners. It is, and this is a conundrum because um, not just with
1: the, the the big power tensions that we were just talking about, or the or the strategic issues there has been also this languishing of democracy across the globe with the rise not just of china but certainly um you know people think china russia north korea these autocratic states or authoritarian regimes where democracy is really um uh, very low on the list of priorities but it's also a rise of uh authoritarian states and and some what what are so-called illiberal democracies whether it be philippines or hungary or turkey Actually, they are democracies, but electoral politics, civil liberties have eroded, Um, judiciaries are less independent or do the bidding of the executive power. The media uh, is silenced. Journalists are killed. In fact, uh, last year, the International Press Institute said there were some 49 journalists killed uh, uh, on the job. So these are all uh, uh, really bad signs of a diminishing or a languishing of democracies across the globe. So there is this this challenge now, this battle, if you like, uh, what I call in the 21st century, the the real fight, which is between liberal democracies and this rising uh, of authoritarian states, military regimes, illiberal democracies as well being impacted in that way. And so, you know, you said promotion of democracy. That's hard enough. I think we're in a defensive posture right now to actually defend liberal democracies and the things that we value and cherish. And that applies even at the international level uh, around the liberal international rules-based order because we want to see a system of international law or a normative framework that um, promotes uh, the rule of law, at least in in the international sense, because we are a trading nation. We want to have uh, a stability which people follow the rules, the same rules. It's not arbitrary. It's not just might is right. Um, And that we can uh, trade with our neighbours peacefully. And coexist peacefully. So there is a battle around the international rules based order as well, being a liberal rules based order and a value around
0: democracy, human rights, uh, international law, Uh, and that is being challenged by those authoritarian states as well. We can do a lot, actually, Salvatore, and I think we have to do a lot. We can actually
1: stand up when it counts, when democracy is challenged. So Myanmar is a perfect case and example. Uh, uh, you've seen a military junta, uh, 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 there's a, there was a coup on the 1st of February, the, the democratically elected uh, parliamentarians are about to form a new democratically elected government on the 1st of February, the military, the Tatmadaw, took over. They have since killed in the last couple of months over 700 civilians who have protested for their rights, for democracy. Now, I have called in the Australian Parliament um, and in and public for the Australian government to do more, to actually um, suspend military cooperation with the regime, which they eventually did, to, to give credit to Maurice Payne, to actually uh, push Australian companies to cease doing business and lining the pockets of the military regime, to um, give amnesty to Myanmar nationals here in Australia, which they did just announce today, and to recognise officially the the CRPH, which is the um, representative body of the democratically elected leaders, to say really clearly, Australia as a democracy, at the very least we can do this. We we do not give legitimacy to the military regime, which has um, uh, conducted a coup against democratically elected leaders. We believe in democracy. We stand by those democracy protesters and this applies by the way uh salvatore to our stance on the hong- the protesters in hong kong who are fighting for their democratic rights it applies uh, in a, a lot of other situations around the world we should be providing support at the international level um, and also uh, not just moral support but significant diplomatic efforts to say loudly and clearly with other democracies around the world we do not accept the illegitimate Military regimes, authoritarian regimes that have taken over or have um, conducted coups against democratically elected leaders. Because if we don't, if we as democratically elected uh, leaders or representatives in our parliaments don't do this, and if our democratically elected governments don't do it, who will? At what point will we stand up for democracy? And this is why I think we should be doing more. The uh, response from our government, and I've been critical of the coalition government, has been tepid to say the least with respect to Myanmar, Uh, at least i said they've done those two things, uh, but it's been slow, slow going. And there's a view there amongst the foreign affairs, national security community, that let's be strategic realists. You know, the military regime in Myanmar, for example, is gonna win. They're gonna defeat the democracy protesters. So we need to engage with them. And if we withdraw, that'll just create a vacuum for which China can actually fill. Well, I've got some news for those people. Um, It's not strategic realism. It's strategic cowardice because China is already there. Okay. And if we don't stand up for these regimes, more and more countries will fall to authoritarian leaders and military hunters. And suddenly we're going to find ourselves in a very, very small minority
0: of democracies around the world. That's a good
1: question, um, Salvatore, because there are certain instances where, you know, Western liberal democracy, uh, if it sort of grandstands too much, it may actually make it more difficult for
0: the minority that they're speaking up for because they can get punished on the ground. Yeah, Salvatore look a couple of points on
1: that I think we can do a lot I think that it starts with an acknowledgement that um, obviously we many of us take our democratic freedoms for granted we're so used to having these freedoms being able to uh, have this conversation freely uh without censorship uh, being able to associate in groups collectively in, in political parties uh being able to uh, speak freely on on issues you know freedom of speech um having uh an independent judiciary having a uh, the the right to choose your leadership through the ballot box peacefully these are things that you know um things that we've taken for granted frankly um but many people around the world fight and lose their lives uh for these these rights so at the very least i think we uh, you know citizens of uh, liberal democracies should do everything we can to support those people who are fighting for those democratic rights um who value them and cherish them in a way that um is really courageous in the sense that they're, they're, they're sacrificing their lives for these freedoms um we at the very least should support them that that could be materially um through various uh charitable ways through ngos uh it could be publicly it could be mm-hmm. you know as you you noted we're not in government we're not in government if you're if you're a government or a parliament there should be very strong Um, diplomatic support as well as um, advocacy and public calls to actually take steps or actions that would support these groups. Uh, I did did so in the Australian Parliament with respect to Myanmar and with respect to other democracy activists, for example, in Hong Kong. Um, This matters because the international momentum and international support um, does have some pressure that is brought to bear on these military regimes and these military hunters. Sometimes they ignore it, of course, but sometimes there is a sort of a line there where reputationally but also the sanctions uh, and other things that can be taken do hurt, they do bite and may, may actually succeed. So and we can't give up on that. you know And that's what I said earlier about this idea, you know these people banning about this idea of being strategic realists, let's just deal with the, the military hunters and the military dictatorships. Well, no, um, that's not realism. that's that's a strategic cowardice because ultimately, as i said the number of liberal democracies will eventually shrink down to a very very small minority and we don't want
0: that uh situation globally no i don't look sally that's a good question um there's been this
1: constant um struggle within australian foreign affairs about uh where our focus should be um obviously uh, there have been um historically strong ties to the us so our alliance has tended to uh with the us our security alliance and strategic alliance has tended to also um you know guide some of the big foreign policy decisions and military decisions about who when we support the U.S. in various uh, theaters of operation and military, um, uh, you know, uh, operations around the world. Um, we've also had a very strong focus on the Pacific, which is our region, you know, neighborhood, if you like, um, and Southeast Asia by extension is our our neighborhood uh, as well. I don't think Myanmar, I mean, M- Myanmar right now uh, is causing a lot of, I think you're right about this, Sally, it's causing a lot of tension within ASEAN countries in Southeast Asia. They are basically split along uh, different lines they split along lines of those who are sort of democracies wanting to put more pressure on um the military hunter and those like thailand and laos and and so on who are not uh democracies technically and um uh, are seeking not to put so much pressure on the military regime so ASEAN is kind of struggling at the moment to deal with the myanmar crisis uh, I, I have a sort of an overarching view of this that australia needs to play a very very um active role as a middle power in the region, working with our partners to help facilitate uh, some of the solutions that are necessary uh, with our overarching objective you know, guiding us, which is to ensure the, the stability uh, and security and, and the, the prosperity
0: that flows from that in our region because of how important it is for us as a trading nation. good question
1: um i don't know if it's a magic term uh salvatore, but we are the 12th largest economy in the world according to various um um various kind of uh measures 12th or 11th depends on which measure you look at um we are a large economy we are uh, we have a relatively strong um military and security apparatus we are both culturally economically and militarily a significant nation a significant nation state and particularly in the region, uh, a significant country and 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 I think you could say a middle power are those that are those types of countries. They're not superpowers like the US and and where China is getting to or even India might be moving from major power to superpower status eventually. <clears throat> but we are certainly a middle power like Japan, like South Korea, uh, Indonesia, other countries of size and weight, strategic weight uh, in the region we have uh, some influence over affairs. We cannot, like a superpower, completely dominate an issue and and bend it to our will through our strength uh, by military means or economic means, like China or the US might, but we can certainly have influence. And I've always said, as a middle power, we should be working with other middle powers to combine our efforts where we have common objectives and, and, and they're aligned. To benefit us as middle powers, and one of those areas I think particularly is to defend that international rules-based order or the liberal rules-based order. There's a difference between the two, Salvatore. You can have a rules-based order internationally, which is arbitrary and set by the superpower of the day, you know, or you can have a liberal rules-based order, which is predicated on a series of um, liberal-based or liberalism in the sense that it it is about human rights, the rule of law. Uh, international law or normative framework that is accepted um, and practiced by the states that uh, both benefit and uh, adhere to it and there's a consistency there that is not determined by brute force or brute power that's to our advantage as a middle power and all the other middle powers it's to, to our advantage to have that kind of system in place because we can't have one particular player completely dominate circumstances whether they be economic or security just for uh, their benefit. Um, so I think the middle powers of the region need to band together and, and globally, frankly, to protect that international rule, the liberal rules based order that has developed since uh, after World War II, uh, against the attacks, frankly, that are coming at it from China to extent from the US, you know, the, the, under the Trump administration, there was a, a, a real dig at some of the, the trade rules and the trade laws that, that President Trump particularly didn't like. Um, but that's not to our long-term benefit. So we need to protect that
0: rules-based order. (laughs) Not liberal as in the Liberal Party, Salvatore. (laughs) In the classic sense of liberal. Um, Sophie, good question. Yes to the
1: second part. Absolutely. We should be uh, playing a much more prominent role working with our ASEAN partners to help negotiate uh, an outcome in Myanmar that is, uh, I think, acceptable to the partners in the region, the neighbours of Myanmar and for the people of Myanmar. Um, And I don't think we're playing that active role, frankly, in a a diplomatic sense at the moment. Uh, As I said earlier, I think we're basically doing the bare minimum and pressured, you know, the current government is kind of pressured to do certain things and they kind of do it after a degree of pressure, but it's kind of a minimalist approach. Um, but so I think we can at- play a much more uh, uh, effective facilitating role with our ASEAN partners. To your first part of your question, Sophie, about the efficacy of ASEAN, that's a big question mark because as I alluded to earlier, it, it, it's splitting a little bit along lines that are, you know, based on whether the, the country is a, sort of a a democracy or more of a, um, a military or authoritarian type regime. Um, and so it's efficacy in actually delivering a successful outcome. And what I mean by successful outcome, frankly, from, from my perspective, and I think from the region's perspective, is to have the military regime step back and allow the democratically elite elected leaders to take their rightful place um, uh, as a civilian government. That's hard to do. And ASEAN Uh, the way it's composed and structured right now it's quite difficult to see them achieving that but I think we can play a positive role in working with them working with partners in the region like Japan, India, South Korea, Indonesia uh, and others and the US of course to uh, really push back on the military junta and make them feel the pain of their actions and that it is unacceptable to us as liberal democracies to uh, for them to continue on this path. Now that will require a fair degree of coordination facilitation and diplomatic effort and it requires some courage strategic courage frankly for us to take that step to do this but i think it's important that we do do it because in the longer term strategic sense this is actually important for us um and i and i think it's important for many of those
0: countries in the region that i uh, noted for us to get this right
1: Well, that is also a very good question because um, there is uh, significant evidence of um, really atrocious, abhorrent human rights abuses uh, against the Uyghur minority in Xinjiang province in Western China. Um, Some of the evidence that's come out from various organisations has been sporadic, but there is a picture that's building around, um, uh, clearly around um, forced labour um sterilization uh, a a cultural kind of uh you know attack on uh the ethnicity and faith and and culture of the uyghurs um forced separation of families um sterilization forced sterilization um and um you know re-education camps is what they're called but certainly large camps with almost a million people that have been put there to be re-educated uh, with propaganda about, um, you know, their position within the state. So, Australia should certainly be doing more uh, with the international community to not only condemn these practices, but to also raise this at multilateral fora, um, work with partners in the region. To again say to China, we want you to be a leader in the region. Um, we, but we do think it is very clear that these human rights abuses are unacceptable and that they need to be addressed. Um, And there's got to be some courage around that. I I think this sort of tiptoeing around it um, again, will come back and haunt us into the future. And that's why I've spoken out on the issue. Um, And not only that, I mean, I think on on the democracy uh, movement in Hong Kong and so on, the, the assertiveness, and the the aggressive assertiveness of China more recently, particularly, has been very stark. Um, And there's almost like the facade has dropped and there's a kind of a, um, you know, a a very aggressive diplomatic stance that's been taken, not against just Australia with respect to our trade and so on, but other countries, Scandinavian countries, other Asian countries have felt that pressure. Um, We cannot counter that. We cannot, we should not. bow to that we need to stand up firmly for our principles our democratic values on human rights um, and that, that's not just obviously in our state but also globally um, and and we need to do it collectively and
0: i think that's the only way that we can push back on on what's happening <laughs> It has been
1: resolved, Thank- thankfully, Salvatore. Lydia and I got a kitten for the kids, and for us, frankly, Shadow. We named him Shadow. Beautiful little kitten who was seven or eight weeks old. On the first night we had him, he escaped under the oven, through a hole under the kitchen cabinet, and was stuck in there uh, for 12 hours plus. And we were panicking. We were like, how do we get Shadow out of there? We had little video cameras on the end of broomsticks to take a picture of him to see where he was. And then finally we had to call the fire engine, uh, the fire station and get the fireys out and they saved the day. They, we dismantled our kitchen. We were gonna saw it open and all the rest of it, but the fireys got, got him out of there and he's safe and happy now. And I can safely say, as, as was reported in the press, uh, in, in, in having been hidden in that cabinet, he is uh, the only Khalil member of the Cleal
0: family that's made it to the shadow cabinet so far. <laughs> Thanks. El-Tori. I really appreciate having me on. Cheers.